Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. That's a simple text. It simply reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So every, every sermon has three elements. There's revelation, explanation, and application. Uh, every Christian sermon should begin with revelation. A, a pastor shouldn't enter a pulpit saying, I have an idea. A pastor should enter the pulpit saying, I have a text. When we speak of revelation, we mean divine revelation, the word of God. That's how a sermon is built, by revelation. And from there we go to explanation. It's like, okay, well, what does this particular text mean? And then finally, from explanation, a faithful sermon should include application. Today's message will be primarily application. And that is due in large part to the text itself, which calls us not to think something, not to talk about something, but to make something. We're not called in this text to be peace talkers or peace opinion uh, issuers. We're not called to be peace theorists. We're called to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Every discipline, uh, every, every area of specialty tends to have two wings that work together, but also in tension with one another. And the one wing is the theoretical and the abstract. And these are the people who think about things. And then there's the practitioners. So there's the academics over here and the practitioners over here. And every single field, whether we're talking about you know, electrical work or uh, nuclear physics or anything, every field, there's a gap between those who live mostly in the theoretical and those who are the doers, the actuators of the information. There's always a gap. In the subject of peace, my friends, the gap is quite large. I don't know another subject in which the gap between those who merely think about it and those who are out actually trying to do it, I don't know of another field where the gap is as large as it is on the subject of peace. So we want to be clear this morning that we are here to obey Jesus's command to make peace, not simply to talk about it, not to give others pointers on how they might make peace if they were so interested, but we simply want to know how to be peacemakers. Now, as part of the application, I'm just going to kind of pastorally direct you to two programs that are going to be underway at our church. This is not the only way for you to be a peacemaker, but it is a way. And sometimes if you don't have a plan for yourself, it's sort of like a Bible reading plan. Sometimes if you don't have a plan for yourself, it's best just to take someone's suggestions. And so I'm going to give you two practical things that you could do to become a more consistent peacemaker. The first one is, is that in January, we're going to launch something called the Bridge Course. And the Bridge Course is a program that's used all over the country, in fact, all over the world by local churches. And it's simply a very low barrier of entry way to let people who are interested in learning more about Jesus, learn more about Jesus. And we are just seeing from uh, brothers, sister churches all over the country, we are just seeing enormous positive good come from simply asking folks that you already know who don't know Jesus, uh, hey, would you like to come over to this house this evening? We're watching a video, 
explaining Christianity. And uh, there's a series of videos, and you have a meal each time, and you'll hear more information about this. But this is one of those places where peacemaking could be extraordinarily practically applied by inviting people over to one of these bridge courses. And secondly, there's another program I want to direct you to, and that is a continuation of what we've been doing for a number of years that we call TLP, or Theological Leaders Program. The idea there, essentially, was to get men positioned theologically where they could lead both in their local churches and in their homes and in the world at large from a sound and, and informed theological perspective. Well, this year we're opening it to women because our TLP for this year is going to be all about biblical counseling. And so once a month on a Sunday afternoon after a service, we'll gather and have lunch. For those of you that are interested, and you can, over the course of a year of participating or so, become equipped to do biblical counseling. Now, why would I say that those two programs one helping people meet Jesus, and another helping people conform their lives to his word, why would I say that those would be ideal expressions, ideal ways to obey Jesus' command to make peace? Well, let's, let's make sure we know what peace is. Uh, if we're going to be making it, let's make sure we know what we're supposed to be making. Peace is, let me just give you a simple definition and explain it from a biblical perspective, Peace is conflict replaced with cooperation. Peace is conflict replaced with cooperation. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It's the presence of something positive as well. Uh, whenever I preach on a subject, I try to take eh, not a long time, but at least a few hours to identify some of the leading sort of academic, so-called secular academic works on a subject. And what I'll do is I'll kind of browse through a Wikipedia article or something like that and find the most referenced person, the one who seems to be one of the most leading experts in the field, and then I'll just read like a paper that they wrote. And uh, one of the things that I've discovered that I didn't know about until I did that with the subject of peace is that there's a whole field called polemology. Polemology. I keep wanting to say pulmonology, but it's a polemology, and it comes from the Greek word polema, which means conflict. So if you've ever heard someone say, he writes in a very polemic fashion, well, what he's saying is, is he's a very punchy writer. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, a writer with teeth, so to speak. So polemology is the study of peace, and it came about really as a serious field of academic work in the 1950s, you know, sort of on the back end of World War II, like, hey, we should probably think more about what conflict is and what peace is. And one of the interesting things as I read through this, this sort of leading voices article on the subject is that he just could not define peace as simply the absence of conflict. That's one of the things that you find as you look at what I looked at anyway, a wide range of sources, is that when people go to actually define peace, merely the absence of conflict does not seem to do the word justice. It's not only the absence of something, it's the presence of something. So that's really interesting to me because I had known sort of the biblical take on that subject, and it was really interesting to me to see how these two things lined up surprisingly well. In, in the biblical idea of peace, 
I think the best way to explain it would be to say that there's a Greek word for peace and there's a Hebrew word for peace. And the Greek word for peace really hits hard on the absence of conflict theme. It's not saying only that, but that's probably the dominant theme of that word, the absence of conflict. By the way, just as an aside, I know we are always in the market for baby names, and I don't know, like, it's hard for me to predict what good baby names are anymore because they, they're really getting weird. Praise God. Uh, so I don't know if anyone's interested in Irene, but it, that's, that's the Greek word for peace, all right? I don't know. I don't know if that's a name that we're going to start using again or not. The last time it was in the top 20 of names was actually during another period of war, I think in the 1915 to 1925 or so on and so forth. So uh, if you're interested in uh, a, maybe, a, is that a good name? I don't know, but that's the name. So that's the Greek word for peace, and it just means the absence of conflict, more or less. And then there is a Hebrew word for peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom goes much further. It includes the absence of conflict, right? But it goes much further into speaking about some kind of positive virtues associated with peace. One of the, the leading scholars who I think, a biblical scholar who's thought well on the subject of shalom wrote this. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So peace, let's go back to our definition. Peace is the end of conflict and the beginning of constructive cooperation. Peace is replacing conflict with cooperation. That would be, I think, a, a biblical definition of peace and also one that a lot of people who think about the subject uh, would agree upon. Now, we're going to talk almost entirely today about helping people establish that dynamic in their relationship with God. But I want to hit pause just for one quick moment and say uh, we all have various relationships in various states. Ideally, our relationships are as I just described them, one in which conflict has been replaced with cooperation. I always kind of think about my marriage in those terms. It's like the absence of conflict, that's the beginning. But I'm not done as a husband simply by virtue that the conflict is absent. I'm not pursuing simply the absence of conflict. I'm pursuing the presence of cooperation. One day I would love to write a book called The Emotionally Abandoned Woman. And a reason I would love to write that book is, is, first of all, I think it's a very real phenomenon. I think a lot of women have been, even in marriages, emotionally abandoned. I think a lot of it is their fault, and I think a lot of it is their husband's fault. But what I'm speaking of here is, without getting into the whole book, what I'm speaking of here is a marriage that thinks it's okay because there is a lack of conflict. It's like, well, that's not really what peace is. That's the first step of peace. But how do you know you're at peace with someone when you stop fighting? No. It's beyond that. That's the beginning place. You can't get anywhere else until you start there. But it goes far beyond that into cooperation. And so if you're looking at a relationship you're in now, and maybe it's been a difficult one, and you're like, well, where do we stand, and how are things? It's like, well, you should stop fighting. 
You should stop yelling at each other. You should stop, you should start insult, you should stop insulting each other. You should stop internally yelling at others and internally resenting and so on and so forth. You should end the conflict piece of it. But that conflict needs to be replaced with something. And that replacement, ideally, long-term, it's not always possible. Ideally, we need to move into shalom where we're replacing the conflict with joyful cooperation again. Sometimes the old people, old people, old, old preachers would talk about being in fellowship. And what do they mean by that? They mean this. They mean this shalomic state in a relationship. Are you in fellowship with so-and-so? Are you in fellowship with so-and-so? They don't mean, are you guys yelling at each other or have you stopped yelling at each other? They mean, have you moved past that and into cooperation? So peacemaking, pretty simple because we've got a pretty simple definition. Peacemaking is simply the ending of a conflict and the enabling of cooperation. Gotcha? The ending of a conflict, the enabling of an environment of cooperation. So let's just break this down and go through it. And just to warn the worship people, again, this is a pretty short message. And I know sometimes I say that and don't mean it, but I'm pretty sure I mean it this time. I can't, I can't promise, but I am pretty sure I mean it. You guys are looking at me with incredulity already. All right, so let's talk about step one, ending the conflict. And again, we're going to talk mostly today, and there are reasons for this, about being peacemakers in the arena that I think matters more than any other arena, and I think the Bible thinks this, and that is being a peacemaker in the arena of a person's relationship with God. Okay? So the first step is to end the conflict. End the conflict. And I want to talk about the conflict that a human being is in with God. And I want to start by bringing up a couple of Bible terms to you. One of the Bible terms is the gospel of peace. You'll see this in Ephesians. You'll see this in Romans. You'll see this hinted at in other places throughout the scriptures. It's in Isaiah. What, is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the gospel of peace? Now, right here on this very question, we are able to see a continental divide that separates faithful churches from faithless ones. If you go into a church and you ask the pastor, what is the gospel of peace? Why is it called the gospel of peace? If the pastor says, because it, makes, it gives you peace with yourself, or if it gives you peace with others, if that's the pastor's main answer, he is not a faithful pastor. The Bible is not talking about the gospel of peace primarily for what it offers the horizontal relationship. The Bible is primarily, when speaking about the gospel of peace, dealing with one extraordinarily difficult reality, and that is simply this. When you are born, when you start off in this world, you are at war with God. You are born with indwelling sin, and you are by nature, the Bible says, a child of wrath. Whether you recognize it or not, you are in enmity with God. It is a very disturbing thing to realize how few people understand this very thing. It's a very disturbing thing to understand that people do not generally understand that unless the blood of Jesus has been applied to them, they are, in their own sins and trespasses, at inactive war with the Lord, inactive conflict with the Lord. It is extremely disturbing to me to imagine if I were able to poll a million people and ask them, Explain to me the moment in which you were at most peace. It is extremely disturbing to understand that most likely the vast majority of respondents to that survey would say, 
would give an answer, and that answer would have nothing to do with them and their relationship with God. It would have to do with their own perception of themselves. It would have to do with whether the voice inside had quieted. It would have to do whether people were leaving them alone. But if you were to ask someone, when was the most peaceful moment of your life, they would not immediately think the moment that Jesus Christ's blood was applied to me and God's wrath against my sin was propitiated. When you ask people about their peace life, they very rarely think about the most important conflict they are ever going to be in. They are in a fight with God Almighty. And that fight only ends one of two ways. It either ends with a joyful surrender in which people are declared righteous by Christ, or it ends in hell. This is where this fight ends. And so when we're talking about being peacemakers, the truth is we only have so much time and energy and it's like, well, what's the area that I should devote myself to to make peace? Where should I try to start being a peacemaker? It's like, well, there is one conflict that matters more than any other conflict. And it's a universal conflict. And it is a man's or woman's conflict with God apart from Christ. And Jesus has come to fix this. Colossians 1:19 through 20. For in him, Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And friends, there is no more consequential conflict in the universe than the one that exists between a sinner and his God. So if you're going to be a peacemaker, which Jesus wants you to be a peacemaker, well, where should you go make peace? One of the places you should go make peace is you should go into the world and tell people that Jesus has paid for their sins and he has made a way for them to be right with God and to end this terrible cosmic war with which they are engaged, this utterly losing battle. So that's, that's the first step, and that's why I would invite you to partake in the bridge course or something like that. It's like we need to be out there letting people know, hey, you're at war with the God Almighty. It's not going to turn out well for you, but Jesus has made a way for you to be right with him and for the conflict to end. But now we're into step two. And step two is not just the ending of a conflict, it's the beginning of cooperation. So now someone, hopefully, according to God's goodness and grace, has redeemed, is redeemed and the fight is over. They are no longer at enmity with God. There is no more condemnation for them because they are in Christ. And so now the next thing is, okay, the conflict is ended. What comes next? Now, there's a reason why I invited you to learn more about biblical counseling. Because what's the next step according to our definition? The conflict is ended. What do we do now? We help a person who was once in conflict with God begin to cooperate with God. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, Chris, that sounds a lot like the thing you were saying a minute ago about conflict. It's like, well, this idea of reconciliation 
is deeper than ending the fight. It's deeper than ending the fight. One commentator on this passage says that the word reconciliation, as Paul uses it here, evokes the beginning of a friendship replacing what used to be a fight. Think about that for a minute. Think about how glorious the gospel is. And think about how easy it is to fall into sort of a kind of nominal, um, you know, sort of Bible belt, say the prayer and move on with your life kind of Christianity. God's not desiring simply to end a fight with you. He's desiring to end the fight so that he can be your friend, so that he can be your father, so you can walk with him and you can cooperate with him and you can do cool stuff together. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but we were made alive in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has good works for us prepared in advance that we might walk in them, and we get to walk with him in them. And so it's not as if we just end the conflict and then move on and are free to do the rest of our lives on our own. That would just create more conflict with God. We're actually invited for the conflict to end so that we can be fully reconciled with him. And that's the conflict being replaced with cooperation. This is the gospel of peace. It's the end of God's wrath against our sin and the beginning of a relationship with the same God who would have destroyed us in hell if it weren't for Christ. The beginning of a relationship with God in which we are called, according to the text even, sons and daughters of God. So gospel peace, it's the end of God's wrath. It's the beginning of God's friendship. That's what Jesus Christ offers us. So what does it mean to make peace? Well, number one, go tell people, hey, um, you know, in, in, in a way that, that fits according to the relationship. Hey, I have terrible news for you. <laughs> You're at war with God. And uh, explain that to them and say, but the good news is, is that Jesus has come and he's paid for your many offenses and sins and has brought you peace. Will you accept what Jesus has offered you? And Lord willing, and oftentimes people will say, I think by faith I will accept what Jesus has offered me. And so then from there you move into, okay, now let's talk about how to help you in your life start cooperating with God. Start walking with God. Start, start replacing the enmity with friendship and, and fellowship. A couple weeks ago, I came across a letter written by an early church father named Jerome. Um, he is well known. So we're talking 400 AD-ish. He is well known for the excellency of his letters. And this one is no exception. So let me give you the context really quickly before I read just an excerpt from this letter. He was at odds with another brother in Christ, a man named John of Jerusalem. And uh, so Jerome and John were fighting. Uh, and it was getting pretty hostile. A third Christian friend, a man named, ironically, Theophilus, wrote a letter to Jerome imploring him to make peace with John of Jerusalem if it was in his power to do so. And I want you to hear Jerome's response to that letter. Your letter shows you to possess that heritage of the Lord of which when going to the Father, he said to the apostles, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And to own the happiness described in the words, blessed are the peacemakers. You coax as a father, you teach as a master, you enjoin as a bishop. You come to me not with a rod and severity, but in a spirit of kindness, gentleness, and meekness. Your opening words echo the humility of Christ who saved men, not with thunder and lightning, but as a wailing babe in the manger and as a silent sufferer on the cross. You have read the prediction 
made in one who was a type of him, Lord, remember David in all of his meekness. And you know that it was fulfilled afterwards in himself. Learn of me, he said, for I am meek and lowly in heart. This is the part, lock back in if you've lost me. You have quoted many passages from the sacred books in praise and peace. You have flitted like a bee over the flowery fields of scripture. You have culled with cunning elegance all that is sweet and conducive to concord. I was already running after peace, but you have made me quicken my pace. My sails were set for the voyage, but your exhortation has filled them with a stronger breeze. I drink in the sweet streams of peace, not reluctantly and with aversion, but eagerly and with open mouth. Now, friends, Jerome is describing what this man did for him. What that man did for him is what biblical counseling is. That's what biblical counseling is. Coaxing as a father, teaching as a master, and joining as a bishop, sure, but especially the B part. <laughs> it's the best part of the letter. Don't, 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 don't sleep on the Bs. <laughs> you have quoted many passages from the sacred books and have flitted like a bee over flowery fields of Scripture. What are, you, what are you actually doing when you engage in the ministry of biblical counseling? You're helping people come to concord, come to harmony with the Lord God in their actions, in their attitudes, in their relationships. And you're buzzing around the flowery fields of Scripture, picking a little nectar here and a little nectar there and delivering it to the person who needs to grow in their cooperation with the Lord God. It's as if this friend looked across the Mediterranean and saw this man and said, Jerome, you need shalom. <laughs> Jerome, you need shalom. That's the t-shirt for the biblical counseling ministry. Jerome got shalom, something like that. Somebody figure that out. Friends, this is the second stage of peacemaking. After you help an individual, and I think we would typically use the word evangelism for this part, after you help an individual find their enmity with God and find an end of that enmity in Christ, you help them find friendship with God. Active, practical fellowship and conformity of their life to the pattern God has set forth in his scriptures. Now, are there other kinds of peace that can be made? Here's what I've discovered, friends. So many Christians are trying to make peace in areas that cannot be sustained apart from someone being at peace with God. Let's, let's go to the most strategic and critical area of conflict. What would do the most good? We have limited lives, limited time, limited energy. What field is the most ripe for harvest? What's going to make the biggest difference? When you can help a human being find an end, of their, an end to the conflict they have with the Lord God in Christ and then replace that conflict with cooperation with the same Lord God in Christ, friends, the consequences of that peacemaking trickle down into every other aspect of life. When Jesus calls us to be peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9, I don't think, I don't think it's coincidental by any means, I'll talk about this more next week, that the very next thing he discusses in, in verse 10 is persecution. I think the question to ask as we're ending, as we're concluding this message, 
I think the question to ask is simply this. Why don't more people make this kind of peace for others? Why don't more people kind of sign up and say, this is the kind of peacemaker I want to be? And here's, I think, the answer. This kind of peace can't get made unless you surrender some of the peace you have now. And now I'm not talking about you surrendering the peace you have with God. I'm not talking about you surrendering even the peace you have with your loved ones and so forth. What I am saying is this. If you will help someone else make peace, you will have to sacrifice a peaceful evening, a peaceful afternoon, a peaceful inbox. You'll have to join people in their hardship and in their lack of peace. Though without ever surrendering your actual peace in Christ, there is only one gospel way to give someone peace. And we see this in the Godhead. To give us peace, the Godhead had to temporarily, temporarily give up its own peace. In order for us to be made right with God, Jesus had to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. The Godhead had to give up peace to give us peace. And so as a way of introducing even communion, I think we have to say, let's just be clear about why more people don't do peacemaking like I'm describing here. Because you would have to surrender some of your lesser pieces to do that. Now, it's temporary. And the consequences is, the consequence is amazingly good, both for you and for your hearer. But let's be honest. One of the main reasons so few people are peacemakers is because they know to do that would be to dip their toe into trouble that is not, strictly speaking, their own. Well, friends, let's celebrate communion today thanking Jesus for not thinking that way. Again, from 2 Corinthians 5, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors from, for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, if through Christ's blood you have found an end of your enmity with God, and you are actively seeking to cooperate with him in the shalomic sense of the word, would you come and partake of this table and for a moment let go of all your obligations and realize who it is who has saved you and how he has saved you? He has saved you by making your trouble his trouble. He has saved you by coming alongside your trouble and laying himself down to make an end to your sin. Come now.
please stand with us and let's respond in song together. I once was lost. I once was lost.
and uh, jotted something down. Uh, to be a peacemaker, most likely, is going to require some conflict with your flesh. Kind of a weird dynamic there, peace and conflict. It is easy to live peacefully, keep to yourself. But to be a peacemaker, to enter into somebody else's life of turmoil, someone else's life of war with God, that requires a serious heart commitment. And then I thought, as I wrote that down, is it really that serious? If I truly believe that Jesus is king of my heart, and I truly believe in his incredible act of peacemaking up on the cross, of bridging that gap between us and the Almighty God, the enmity that we had with Him, then I should be humbled. I should be thankful for that opportunity to be tagged by God to say, John, go and be a peacemaker. What an incredible gift that He's given us. If you're a guest this morning, thank you so much for joining. Um, really, really honored to have you here. Um, they're going to put something up on the screen. And it's a QR code, and it looks like this. There's also cards that look like this in the back. Um, go ahead and scan that. It takes you to our church website, and you can see all things Providence there. Um, on there, there's also, uh, for members, a link for tithes and offerings. Um, this church really prioritizes giving of our resources, our times, treasures, and talents for the glory of God. So check that out. And for our benediction this morning, we're going to continue with our theme of uh, congregational reading. So if you guys would all like to read with me. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for your love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may give you praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.